0: Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I didn't get a whole lot watched this week, I, it's, it is what it is, but I did manage to see The Old Guard, uh, Netflix's latest m- uh, movie adapted from Greg mini miniseries of the same name, as well as their dub for BNA, Brand New Animal, and uh, I finally finished all five seasons of Yu-Gi-Oh! So we're going to talk about that. Uh, so yeah, let's get started. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen, it's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. All right. So yeah, between uh, probably depression and lack of sleep, I didn't get a whole lot of things done that I wanted to do this past week, including watch a lot of the new stuff that came out, like uh, Greyhound. Tom Hanks's new World War II movie came out on Apple plus um there's a whole there's there's about a whole bunch of stuff that just came out uh the new um uh Andy Sandberg movie over on Hulu Palm Springs I wanted to watch uh a whole bunch of stuff that came out and I missed most of it because you know my brain decided not to work this week uh so I did manage to watch the old guard. Um, I'd never heard of the miniseries before, but Greg Rucka, I've heard in the comics industry, um, I've heard mostly good things, I don't, can't think of anything he's done off the top of my head, let me see what all his bona fides are, um, Action Comics, Batwoman, Detective Comics, World of New Krypton for DC, uh, he wrote the uh, comic Whiteout for Oni Press. Uh, that was turned into the really mediocre movie with Kate C- Beckinsale. Um, Countdown. He wrote, co-wrote Countdown to Infinite Crisis, and start and uh, with um, which is the prelude to Infinite Crisis. Which uh, no idea how good that is. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, I would let uh, Linkara read that stuff. Um. Apparently, he played uh, a gossip comics gossip columnist who attempted to kill Joe Casada uh, in CSI. Um, in a comic book mini series for CSI, cool. Um, but yeah, it looks like he's been all over the comics industry. Uh, Ultimate Daredevil and Elektra, Wolverine, Elektra. No Man's Land uh event for DC Comics uh which was a Batman thing. Uh Wonder Woman Hikatea original graphic novel. So he's been here and there bouncing between Marvel and DC. Uh he wrote he wrote Punisher uh arc, he wrote uh stuff for Image, DC. He took part in DC Rebirth. Um and yeah, this is from 2017 and uh, he also got the opportunity to adapt the screenplay uh, he wrote the screenplay for it so, he ha- you know, it's one of those instances where the author, or the writer has full creative control, so to speak in terms of bringing it to the screen and uh, on the page so, it's interesting um, and then it's directed by the woman who did Love and Basketball and The Secret Life of Bees, I forgot her name uh, Gina Prince Bythewood I think Bythewood um, And I think this is Her first action movie Yeah, Beyond the Lights She also did with Gugu mbatha Uh And Minnie Driver Huh, that was from 2014 um, And Machine Gun Kelly Oh god, back when he was like Just starting to become a thing <laughs> uh, But yeah, she's best known for Love and Basketball and the Secret Life of Bees Um, she wrote a movie called Napoli Ever After. She's very, um, she's, you know, most of her movies have been, uh, black, um, black centric. She also, uh, worked on the writing staff for A Different World back in the day, uh, which was the, um, the Lisa, Lisa Bonet spinoff of the Cosby show where she goes to college, uh, before (laughs) they drop her and, uh, they focus on Jasmine Guy instead. (laughs) Um, but, so yeah, so she's been fairly, um, you know, prominent in, in like, as a smaller, uh, black movie producer and director and writer. Uh, she also worked on, uh, the pilot for Cloak and Dagger. Uh, she's, uh, um, and, uh, something called Before I Fall. Oh my God, she wrote the screenplay for that, uh, Um, Mm -hmm. Chloe Grace Moretz, no, Zoe Deutsch movie, okay, Before I Fall, um, is that the one where it's basically Groundhog Day, but with a teenage girl? Yeah, that's, okay, I remember that one, uh, yeah, so so she wrote the screenplay for that, I I remember that not being too bad, I mean, it's just Groundhog Day, but about a teenage girl, and, um... Mm -hmm. I remember it being pretty decent. So, yeah, she's uh, directing this, and this is her first real action movie. And uh, she does a really solid job. Like, the action here is very well done. Like, it's not, it's never bad enough to make you think, oh God, no, this person has no idea how to direct action. No, she's solid. And I think working on Cloak and Dagger, like, she's also been uh, cited to try and adapt uh, Black Cat and Sable uh, for Silver Sable for uh, Sony. Because they wanted to do that for uh, the their Spider Verse movies, so that she's been kind of off and on attached to bring them to the screen, which would be interesting. Uh, I think she's capable of it. She's very clearly a talented uh, writer and director, but uh, yeah, it's uh, Charlize Theron stars. As the leader of this group of essentially immortal warriors who have spent the centuries, you know, going around killing people. They're basically a mercenary team, killers for hire. And, um, this time around, uh, they're being, they're finally being discovered by, uh, a former, well, they've been found out by a former CIA agent played by Chiwetel Ejiofor, who, um who sells them out to a pharmaceutical company so that they can experiment on them and figure out what gives them such long life and super fast healing so that they can cure diseases, you know, for a price. Essentially, a watch character wanted to... Because everybody has this ongoing thing in the story where... You know, somebody they know dies from a disease and they're like, well, if we, they had your powers, that would never have happened. And so you, you owe it to the world to give them to give them a taste of your powers. And so that's a recurring motif throughout the movie. But Choatelegia 4 doesn't realize that the guy running the pharmaceutical company is a douchebag and is, and is essentially evil. Gee, who would have thunk? Um... So yeah, it's kind of one of the main downpoints of the movie, is that Joe DeLegiofor is shocked to learn that the pharmaceutical executive doesn't have the best interests at heart. Who would have thunk? Um, but at the same time, a new, uh, a new uh, member of their species group, whatever you want to call them, uh, played by Kiki Lane, shows up. She's a marine... Uh, who's serving in Afghanistan at the time, and they find out, and she finds out that she has this power. Uh, Kiki Lane, for those who don't know, was featured in... Um, uh, if Beale Street... She was the star of If Beale Street Could Talk and was also in Native Son uh, the last couple of years. She's pretty fairly new. Like, she's also going to be in Coming to America, the uh, sequel to Coming to America, I think, made direct to Netflix. But, um... Yeah, she's kind of uh, very apprehensive at first because she's like, "I just realized I can't die, and now you're kind of kidnapping me and taking me away, and I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's I don't know what's happening, and I don't like it." <laughs> and as she's hanging out with these groups and they're starting, she's like, kind of learning how kind of messed up it is to live forever. Like once again, this is not as much of an like. There's a lot of good action in this but when in between the action it's a lot of character um sort of introspection and a lot of the, them kind of philosophizing on um what it means to be immortal and when the, everyone you know and love around you that's not one of your kind dies it's very you know it's it's an interesting idea but I don't think it really nails the commentary I don't know how good the comic is either uh I'd have to read it but uh but yeah, it's uh it's a really solid movie for the most part. Like I I didn't love it, but I re I think it's a really it's a really interesting premise and it's handled very well. Uh they also uh feed like two of the members of this mercenary group are uh met during the crusades and have been gay lovers uh and gay and have had a gay relationship ever since and it's adorable. Um and, it's, and, like, it's never, like, they're, like, they, you know, show, uh, they have him kissing at one point, and they show him being romantic, but it's never, like, overtly, like, stereotypically Hollywood-style gay. It's just like, hey, here's two guys. They happen to love each other. Here's their relationship. What a concept. So, I'll give them points. I do give them points for that. Um and you know once again the the debate between the debate of if you have this power do you have an obligation to share it with other people uh you know it's a, that's a very um you know it's a very you know it's a very interesting debate because you know the way they went about it is not good because you gave it to a pharmaceutical company which is which is going to sell it off for profit but if you gave if you gave it away to people mainly those who are dealing with the de- very debilitating diseases and you know things like cancer and aids and you know de- and, you know debilitating uh, multiple sclerosis uh, uh, alzheimer's you know things like that if you gave it away in doses like that um so they could go on living their lives without breaking the bank that That's an interesting debate to have, and maybe they'll have it more in the sequel because they do set up for a sequel, which there has been written one. Greg Rucker wrote a sequel miniseries um, dealing with because that's the other thing. Not only uh, are there two, is there a male male gay relationship, there's hints that uh, Charlius Theron's character, who is from Greece initially, had, um, or Scythia, I think that's Greece. Uh, nomadic people dominated the Pontic steppe Eurasia okay so she's she's uh, no she's from- okay so she's not specifically from the Mediterranean she's more Eurasian uh, but she meets a uh, dur- back in the back in the medieval times and whatnot she met a uh, another one another kind like her because they have this innate sense that oh, Um, one of our, there's another one of us out there and they have like a psychic vision. It's a, it's a, it's a cheat, but whatever. Um, at the same point, uh, I'm trying to see if uh, the, uh, um, trying to find, uh, where she's from. Her name's Quinn, uh, Q-U-Y-N-H. So I'm thinking Southeast Asia, either Thailand or Vietnam and, uh... At one point, and so during uh, a point where they're um, being persecuted as witches, uh, they're separated, and it's believe and uh, it's believed. Spoiler, minor spoiler. I mean, ma- kind of major spoiler, but I mean, it's a it's like a giveaway during the mid credit sequence that basically, because um, uh, that's the thing is that this they were a couple, essentially. They hinted at it. They never showed um, like anything romantic, but, you know, they're two gal pals who were really into each other. I, We've all heard that story, you know, your aunt has a really good friend from college. Yeah. So, um, basic. So basically, it seems like they're hinting at more behind that relationship in the next one, if there is a next one. For all we know, this is going to be it. <laughs> we'll see if Netflix likes it enough, because it cost uh, $70 million for them to make. So I don't know how they write that off for how many views they need to make that warranty sequel but uh you know for one you know for a for you know for an adaptation of a comic book and an interesting uh version of a superhero movie it's fine you know i'm not saying like it's gonna be it's the best thing on netflix right now but it is you know it's a fun little action movie with uh some interesting um thought even if it doesn't uh even if it doesn't really uh, explore them too deeply either. I feel like it rushed through a lot of the themings and didn't give it time to breathe either. So, yeah, it is what it is. Speaking of uh, shows that didn't rush through their themes, let's talk about BNA, Brand New Animal. It is, uh, I think, Fuji TV? Uh, Who made uh, Brand New Animal? Uh, Yeah, it was originally for Fuji TV Trigger, uh, was the studio who made it. That's the Kill a Kill studio, Gurren Lagan, Little Witch Academia. And uh this is an ad adap- this is an adaptation of um believe a manga series. Uh light novel. BNA Zero Masara ni naranai kemo Uh whatever that means. Uh basically the premise here is it's another Zootopia ripoff. No, but seriously, it's basically uh it's a story about beast-kin, or beast-men, how they, they use both. Um, there is a new species of humanoid that have the appearances of beasts. And unfortunately, um, uh, the lead act, the lead character, Michiru, is a human girl who gets becomes a beast-kin, beast-woman, beast-girl. Uh, cause they say beastman, whether it's, uh, male, female, or non-binary, whatever, they just say beastman, uh, you know, like, Saul Beastman, attorney at law. <laughs> um, but yeah, these beastkin are, uh, in their own little segregated city away from the rest of the humans, and it opens with a lot of imagery of oppression and racism toward these beastkin. Like, Michiru is being hunted down by a group of humans in the, in the first episode before she's rescued by a group of beastkin led by a recurring uh, character, Marie, uh, who is a mink. Uh, and uh, Michiru, as it goes along, uh, she calls herself a raccoon, she is, but she is more of a tanuki. Because she has weird tanuki-like powers, uh, she call, She says uh, because she was a human girl, she calls her condition beast manitis. Because you know everything itis is uh, now all of a sudden becomes a disease terminology, <laughs> but um, but she essentially is a tanuki and has the ability to stretch her arms, gain massive muscles, and cheetah legs, and is able to basically shape shift herself. Uh, with other animal po- other animal parts. And as the story goes along and she um teams up with Shiro, a uh wolf beastkin, a white wolf beastkin, um specifically, or Silver Wolf, uh, who goes around uh his big thing is that he is a very proud beast man and he hates when other beastkin uh use their use their um use their abilities to, uh, the detriment of other Beastkin. He hates terrorists, he hates, uh, you know, people, sellouts. Uh, he's a very, he's very, uh, hot, he has, he very very moral and grandstanding about that. And, um, as the story goes along, as as they investigate how Michiru became a Beastkin, they also find her friend had also become a Beastkin, and the city uh, Anima City where they live is funded by a pharmaceutical company. Hey, this week's theme is pharmaceutical companies are evil uh, and they're trying and so as this series goes along, they um, you know we begin to learn how much this pharmaceutical company is trying to, T- uh, tap into the genetics of beastkin and what they're planning to do with them and um in the meantime we get some interesting uh story there's a cult of the silver wolf because there's this myth of a giant silver wolf who protects all beastkin and um it and it's very very clearly Obvious who the Silver Wolf is. In fact, it's kind of pretty much given away in the first episode, and it's not officially revealed until, like, halfway through the series. And we're supposed to be like, Gasp? This person is the Silver Wolf? But in the meantime, there's a cult of the Silver Wolf, run by um, Nichiru's friend, who's a kitsune, who also, because she was a human who has attained the abilities of a beastkin, somehow gained the power of the mythical kitsune fox, the yokai fox who has the ability to shapeshift. It's very odd, very odd. And then um it, it so it all kind of culminates into what the pharmaceutical company has planned for Anima City and the beastkin and this cult of the beast uh, cult of the silver wolf kind of leading a religious movement in the city. And uh, what a, and then it ends with um, Nazana, uh, Michiru's friend, ho- becoming a pop idol, which is what she always wanted. So she's like, all, so all of a sudden, like, everybody in Anima City is like, yes, we love you. Oh, great. Mistress of the Silver Wolf. Oh, great. Silver Wolf. Also, okay, now you're a teen pop idol. Okay, then. So, I guess they're just all cool with that. Like, they never thought that the thousand-year-old beast... You know, great beast god was a pop... uh, uh, They're just okay with her being a pop idol. Sure. (laughs) But, um... Along the way, uh... She meets some interesting other beast kin. There's, um... There's, uh... Jem and Melissa Horner who are the who run the essentially the bed and the bre- bed and breakfast where Michiru and uh Shiro sleep there's the prime min... there's um what's her name uh uh bu- 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 Barbara Bar- 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 Rose who's a naked mole rat beastkin and the mayor of Anima City she's a very interesting arc um and uh there's a there's a bit there's a bit towards the latter half of the season that features an albatross beastkin that bring and it has interesting themes that it wants to bring up, like um you know you know specifically racism and prejudice, but also um, the fact that because in order to gain their human rights they lost their animal rights and some of the beastkin um, think of themselves more as animals than humans and you know the. The you know the things of that nature, gambling and um, organized crime are rampant throughout it. Uh, there's a, there's an episode where uh, Michiru befriends uh, Nina Flip. Who is a dolphin beastkin and the daughter of the uh, or the main cr- uh, criminal outfit in the city? <laughs> uh, and they go to the mainland and hang out with a bunch of humans. This is the other thing that doesn't makes that makes it weird. Like it's one thing if you're just animals and you can't change your shape or form, you're always animals. But for some reason. They can hide their sh- their fo- their uh, animal form and have mostly human forms. Like for the most part, other than Michiru, most of the citizens of Animal City are in their human form, unless it's like a festival or they get upset or you know they they, they, lose, they lose control. Most of the time, everybody's in their human forms. So what's the like? How 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 is it that people don't? You know, like discovered this. Like it, it would be one thing if they were just always beastkin, always like they just always had the shape of their animal. But the fact that they can hide it makes it weird. That like I, I get the you know the prejudice is always going to take form, but like you can just hide. You know, it's 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 it's, it's weird. It's I think it's because they also make a Nazi reference because of course they do. But it kind of feels like maybe they're trying to go for an allegory of Judaism, where you can, because that's the thing. That's a main issue with Jewish uh, prejudice and racism is that un- unless you have a spe- you know, you're specific, you're showing specific signs of your Jewish heritage, more often than not, you can quote unquote blend in with quote unquote normal society, you know, with Christian. Uh, society. You know, most people aren't going to reckon, unless they're like some weird racist who like, knows, that sh- knows the features of the true Jew. Most people, most Christians aren't going to tell the difference between who's Jewish and who's not. You know, and so if they were trying to go for that, that would be something. But it's not what they're going for because it's. I feel like it's just a weird constraint where they didn't want to continually draw the animals as as the beast kin as animals all the time whereas i feel like um another netflix furry bait uh show uh b stars handled that idea of racism a little better because the animals were animals the whole time so you could just focus on the idea of prejudice and racism in terms of predators and prey and whatnot and focus on the characters instead of like how the how the how the allegory is supposed to work when they they can transform into human, but they're beastkin, and what does it mean, and why how does it work and it's weird, like how do have they always been able to turn human? In which case how did how are they found out? Like what is the point? It's really it feels very half-assed. But yeah, it's uh I, I didn't hate it. I, I The animation is solid. I mean, Trigger Trigger Studios is a, is a fantastic... Um, is a fantastic animation house. So, I mean, the animation is fantastic. But, like, the storyline feels like it's trying to do so many different things. Pover- trying to tackle poverty, racism, prejudice. Because, um, like, even the whole thing. Like, Michiru, throughout the whole time, she considers herself human. And she's beginning to recognize... Um, How being you know being uh, prejudged and being treated differently because of your because of who you are feels for the first time, and it's trying to do all these things, and it doesn't really know what it wants, what theming it actually wants to tell. Because sometimes it's just here's a silly episode where they play baseball, and here's an episode where. But then here's an episode where it's about the evils of the pharmaceutical industry and the and government corruption. And it's just all of these ideas they're trying to cram into 12 episodes and I feel like we don't have any time to really focus on it or develop it at all. I feel like maybe if they didn't rush it into 12 episodes, maybe if they kept it like maybe if they focused on like little bits of it and allowed things to develop it would be more interesting. That's how B-stars handled it. You know, where it's just like there were these major themes, but they played out over the course of the arc. And not just like, oh, here's all these things. <laughs> <laughs> like trying to juggle them half-assed. So yeah, BNA is not a bad series. It's It tries. It's gorgeous to look at. And it's co- trying its best to be interesting and thought-provoking. But in the end, it's just a goofy little anime series about about furry bait. So yeah, if you want furry bait and cute raccoon girl... Michiru is his cute Tanuki girl, and I dig her. So, whatever. It is what it is. Um, and uh, continuing along from, pharmaceutical, from the tie being pharmaceutical companies are evil to now the last two are tied together because of anime bullcrap, uh, we've got... I finally finished up all five seasons of the original Duel Monsters series Yu-Gi-Oh! Uh, the original... Uh, it's called Duel Monsters. It's the uh, original... OG Yu-Gi-Oh! series And um, I grew up on the show I, l- I loved it as a kid And I'm most familiar with up to season 3 And uh, I think, you know, watching Yu-Gi-Oh! Bridged Has made me kind of revisit my love for it And so I decided to go back and rewatch all the episodes Man, does it not hold up <laughs> It was a product of pre-streaming age uh, film make- uh, Television making because it has to, it feel it. It's every episode is written and edited as though you're tuning in for the first time and need to be caught up. And that it again, like not every show did that, but Four Kids was awful about that. <laughs> yeah, Four Kids is not a. Gr- it's like corny and fun to revisit it, but damn, they were a terrible. Uh, the only thing that Four Kids had going for them was their voice cast um, uh, stable, like Eric Stewart, Rachel Lillis... Veronica Taylor, uh Dan Green popping in and out. All these actors um working for four ki- who worked for four kids were um were all ex Was there wasn't was Veronica Taylor in something else I watched? I know she they the basically all the Pokemon voice actors were in Dinosaur King, which is another thing I tried starting to watch because I like the idea, but it's god it's so bad to watch. I can't do it. But um I thought there was something new she was just in veronica taylor um let me see come on there we go uh Uh, didn't i say to make my abilities average in the next life uh fire emblem uh more anime more anime she was apparently in the dragon ball super movie broly uh i thought there was something else though she's in dragon ball super interesting Ribrian, whoever that is. Uh Super four, paladins, Sailor Moon Crystal, she's Sailor Pluto. Did not know that. That's neat. Uh She's in Zexel. <laughs> Interesting. She's in Hearthstone as a voice. Uh she's apparently in LA Noir. Uh Huh. Guess not. Oh well. Um well, apparently she played April O'Neil in the 4 kids uh 2003 turtle series Neat. Um Anyway, uh Yeah, Yu-Gi-Oh. It's uh I think the first, I think the second season is the de facto best. I think that one has the best um overall arc and interesting uh events. Like the initial one is just like what is even happening? It's just like complete madness. And then by the time season two rolls around, they're actually trying to incorporate more of how the actual Yu-Gi-Oh game works into the episodes, which it would then become how the um series would play out. Each you know, they're not fully one-to-one how the card game works to this to the anime, but they are adapting more and they as they time went on, they adapted more and more of the card game mechanics, into the, uh, the anime. To so the point where all the anime does now is promote the new card game gimmick, which is why I can't get back into Yu-Gi-Oh! God damn. Like, at least the Pokémon card game I could get back into, because it's just it's pretty much unchanged, except they added fairy and dragging types, and uh, some new mechanics here and there. They've got, like, a new um, Dynamax card where you get giant-ass Pokémon cards, like a novelty check. Size Pokémon cards to play, but um, for the most part, the game mechanics are still the same, whereas you Konami, every couple of years, it's just like, crap, how do we innovate Yu-Gi-Oh!, uh, Pendulum Summoning, and XYZ, summon, Ziz's Summoning, uh, X's Summoning, whatever you pronounce it, uh, Synchro Summons, and um, all this crap and it's just like oh my god i, I there's so many types of cards now i can't you can't like with a pokemon you can grab like five six card packs and manage to semi build a deck together whereas with Yu-Gi-Oh, you're just like there's no way in hell you're there's no point in buying the booster packs anymore because there's no way in hell to make a decent deck out of just the booster packs now because it's that insanely convoluted. God damn it, Konami and Upper Deck. Um, back to the anime, though. Uh, yeah, everything about it, it... Like, the the fact that the four kids edited out guns and everything is going to the Shadow Realm. Like, Little Karibo perfectly mocks that in uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! Bridge and it's so goofy and stupid. And it's just like, this series... It, it's It's not as bad as their... Dumbing down of One Piece, but Four Kids could not let anime be for a little older audiences because cartoons are for little kids, and we can't have these in cartoons for little kids. God damn, Four Kids. Anyway, yeah, I love the Battle City arc. Um, I think that's probably my favorite of the arcs. Uh, then by the time and then season three is eighty percent filler with the freaking virtual world with. He plays, uh half brother and Gozaburo becoming an evil giant smoke monster. Like the whole season three is just like complete filler and is a waste of your time. Like it'd be one thing if it was the the whole deck master system promoted was usable in the card game, but no, it's just some goofy crap they made up to fill time because apparently they couldn't just let the Battle City arc finish. Um, and then season four happens, and it's just like. Pfft, Screw it! Whatever! Uh, Atlantis is real! And it actually it references Aristotelian Atlantis because Aristotle made up Atlantis as like a a thought experiment. And it references bits of Aristotle's Atlantis. I learned this from uh, overly sarcastic productions uh but from season 4 onward kaiba's the best because he gives no f's he is done i am done giving a give, giving a damn i am just so tired of this nonsense uh but then of course the backstories are all stupid how gozabur kaiba um, inserted himself into the virtual world and adopted Seto to pu- so he could put Noah's brain in Seto's body. And then darts uh, killed everybody's, fam- killed everybody's family and manipulated time and space and the elements of the world in order to gain his followers. And then Mai turns evil because people are dicks like, oh no, Mai is completely disrespected by everybody in the dueling community. How she might as now it's time for her to turn evil and get, change voice actors. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I hated Mai's heel turn. I think it I don't think it made any sense. Maybe it did in the in this in the uh, original Japanese, but four kids saying like, oh, people are dicks, so now Mai's gonna turn evil and destroy the world. That's so stupid. Um, also, Kaiba uses cards as projectiles, and it's stupid, and I love it. Uh, Kaiba is, honestly, the best character. I love Pharaoh, I love Atem, uh, as they reveal his name to be. Uh, even though they said, oh, you're Yami, 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 four seasons of Yami! And then all of a sudden, oh, by the way, your name's Atem now, so I'm just supposed to remember his name's Atem now. Cool. Thanks for just... Like, it would be one thing if they were, like, they just always referred to him as Pharaoh, and they didn't hint that his name is gonna be Yami, but... God, stupid writing. It's like they weren't paying attention from sequence to sequence. It's just like, oh, we completely forgot this continuity. Screw it, here's the new continuity. I don't care. Um, Also, uh, the whole bit with, like, the Ori Calcos shows that people are pure evil! But we're supposed to be the good guys, somehow. (laughs) Uh... And then the the calcos made up a dual disc before Kaiba made up a dual disc because dual discs actually originated in ancient Egypt. <laughs> God, Yu-Gi-Oh! is so stupid. Also, uh, in season five, the first half of season five, it's a it's a um, it's a uh, competition arc. It's a tournament arc. This uh, here's the thing: most people hate tournament arcs in anime. Yu-Gi-Oh! is like 90% tournament arc because everything, except for season four, everything about Yu-Gi-Oh! is winning some card tournament. Everything about it, except for the last chunk where it's finding out the pharaoh's name and going back to ancient Egypt. But for the most part, like 75% of Yu-Gi-Oh! is literally just tournament arcs. And it's an episode, and it's like four part episodes of tournament arcs. God damn. <laughs> Uh, also, they have a complete po- cap- Pokemon ripoff called Capsule Monsters, where it's just like, "Oh, by the way, here's this new thing we're trying to promote. It's a new gimmick because we have no idea what we're doing." Anyway, uh, yeah, season five is weird. I I don't I think it's the worst because the main the main kid has a fairy tale deck that's all like half ca- half the cards are completely made up and not real. Like it's one thing. Like the one thing I didn't like the one thing that's weird is that. They forced a gimmick that required them to make a card to undo the gimmick that wasn't necessary. Like I don't know if it was a rule of the time, but basically in the card game, there's fusions, and in the anime, a fusion couldn't attack on the turn it's summoned. They undo this later on, but for some reason, e- this goes back to the Japanese version where they decided to make up a gimmick so that they c- so that everybody had to have a de- cards in their deck. To allow them to attack on the turn that a fusion monster is summoned. When you could have just kept the rule the same. Just, you didn't have to change the rule so that you could add a gimmick c- fake card to, 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 to make your rule work. What the hell? Anyway. Yeah, so. There, yeah, season five just completely, which is interesting because I thought the, uh, all the, um. Okay, oh what's the, uh, ring, art, ring cycle thing called for Wagner? Wagner's ring cycle uh Nibelung is it nibelung let me see the ring cycle the ring des nibelung Nib- nibelung yeah the ring of nibelung 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 uh which is take which is vog which is a Wagnerian opera series um take it, adapting Norse mythology and features uh, ma- uh, major um, ma- you know major Norse figures like uh Brunhilda and the Valkyries and uh, they, you know so all of these they it's all about the great Norse gods and whatnot, uh, like uh, Odin and Frigg and Freya and Erda and Loki I mean it's not it's 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 not one to one Norse, but it's very very it's definitely um it may it seems to be Germanized versions of the of the of the uh Norse names. Like Voltan Voltan instead of Odin, Fricka instead of Frigg, Freya is still the same Donner? We think it's supposed to be Odin. Uh Eriza, I think the same. The Norns are the same. and then uh yeah there's a, I've, n- I've never seen the full cycle. I have no idea how the story the, the ring of Nibelung goes, but um, the uh, main villain from the first half of season five has an entire deck based on the Valkyries from the Nibelung cycle of Wagner's Opera, and the cards are real. like those are actual cards in the game that you can buy. <laughs> and it blows my that blew my mind that it happened. Uh, that that's a real thing that you could get, and I was like, okay, these these are probably made up, just like the stupid fairy tale monsters. And nope, the Valkyries—you can have a Valkyrie deck in Yu-Gi-Oh. Sure, why not? Um. Anyway, yeah. So yeah, there's this whole convoluted scheme to to defeat Kaiba. And then they finally dig into the Pharaoh's past after five seasons and they go back to history and it's all a big shadow game as Yugi, as Yami, as, uh, Atem, once again I'm messing up his name because they change it like three times, is, uh, supposed to face off with Zork, the computer game from the original Apple Macintosh! Oh, Yugi's gotta play Zork! I have no idea who else remembers Zork. Anyway, uh, and, the, and 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 uh, so yeah, Atem faces off against Zork, def- destroys all the evil in the universe, but he has to lose to Yugi Moto in order to pass on to the final an- into the final resting place because. His final goal is to lose because he, his stupid anime protagonist powers has allowed him to win for, the enti- for pretty much the entire series. And so his ultimate goal is to lose to Yugi. So it proves that Yugi is able to live without the Pharaoh. It's an interesting idea, but it's still it's all very stupid because this is all a children's card game, <laughs> and they've always they keep saying that this whole everything about this series runs around the fact that everybody's super obsessed with a children's card game. It'd be like basing a universe around Uno. In fact, I recommend uh, what's his name? Uh, Brandon Blaber. Uh, Jello Apocalypse. Jello Apocalypse. Jello something. Uh. I recommend his fake dub... Fake uh, Uno anime. (laughs) It's beautiful. It's perfect one... It's like a perfect one-to-one of how the Yu-Gi-Oh! Four Kids dub was written. Uh, So yeah, that was Yu-Gi-Oh! It's a lot of nonsense. And if you have a nostalgia for 90s Four Kids era nonsense, it's still on Hulu. I do want to check out... um, I think Crunchyroll has the original Japanese. I think... Uh, When I get the chance, I want to try checking that out. But, yeah, for this, uh, I'm kind of good on Yu-Gi-Oh. I'm all yu gi out. And I've tried to go to the next four kids dub of Dinosaur King. And, my God. Like, I love hearing Eric Stewart and Rachel Lillis and Veronica Taylor. But, man, that series is dumb. Like, man, it's awful. I cannot stand it. Like, it's also really weird seeing CG dinosaurs uh, set against uh, anime background. It's really weird and off-putting and I, I'm not a fan. So, yeah, um, Dinosaur King, uh, is, is, is if that's gonna, that would be another hurdle that if I want to, I'll try finishing it, but otherwise, nah. Okay, so that's all the stuff I watched. So uh, we're going to take a quick break and when I come back, uh, since both of the, um, since one, since the main, uh, release this week was Bina, BNA, BNA, and it had a really bad attempt at allegory, we're going to talk about allegories in film. You... You, there Do you know what horror is? You like horror films. You like gore. You want to hear four badass women discuss and dissect modern and classic horror films. Madness Join us at Beyond the 20. Cabin in the Woods, A Good Ghoul's Guide to Horror. Oh! On the gun, the Don't read the line. Do you know that in the world of the insane, you will find a kind of truth more terrifying Allegory is mainly talked about in English classes in reference to literature, but because you know film is film and television are a semi you know partially written art form, then yeah, they will often pop. Especially since a lot of literary works with allegory are adapted to film, of course the allegory is going to be featured in film, and so I kind of wanted to talk about the issues when tackling allegories in um, in film. And not so much television, mostly film. Uh, specifically, I wanted to talk about uh, how allegory is used to used to cover social commentary, things like racism, classism, poverty, sexism, you know, things like that. And I think it, it, it's such a common trope because the main thing you can do with an allegory is cover a topic without alienating the audience so to speak like Zootopia is able to cover prejudice and racism not very not amazingly well not one-to-one not not perfectly but in a way that is that you're able to get it across to the audience and not alienate them you know not call them out not say that if you're if you're like this you're being racist and you're bad which is a main issue when covering. Things uh, when covering actual um, discrimination, actual racism, actual uh, prejudice. When you're covering those real world things in the real world by tackling real, you know, them on film, a lot of times you'll alienate your audience. And so there, when black, when there are films centered on the black experience and it covers these issues, you're going to alienate. You're ultimately going to alienate some aspect of the white audience because they feel like they're being targeted. They're being they're, they're being told, hey, this is you. You're this asshole. You're the bad guy. And in some cases, they may be, but it's um it's easier to get those people to pay attention when it's not them being targeted. And it's it's interesting to see how some filmmakers handle the you, covering these issues in in the form of allegory. Like, when it comes to uh, race, one of the things that I immediately thought of, one of the reasons I wanted to cover this was with BNA. It wants to try and tackle these very heavy concepts, but is not really doing a good job of telling the allegory. And it's not developing that allegory and what that immediately made me think of was another netflix movie it was a netflix movie that you may all remember written by that piece of garbage max landis it's bright you know fairy lives don't matter today yeah that utter piece of trash where max landis attempted to write an allegory about racism using modern fantasy ah boy Yup. So that's immediately where my mind went, and that's kind of like the way other end of tackling uh, racism through allegory, and that made me wonder what are some of the good attempts at allegory, and I don't, I didn't find one for race. Uh, Zootopia is a bit hit and miss uh, when it comes to it. it's, it's good at points, but it's never a one to one. Uh, and it or ignores a lot of aspects of racism that uh most white people don't know about. It feels like if a person who had experienced uh systemic racism and you know cultural racism would be able to add add bits and pieces that i mean there are some the the fact that uh it's genetic. It's that's in their nature. You know, that's a very that's a very old racist talking point when it comes to like black people and you know Chinese and Asian East Asian people. Um, but uh, I I really it's it's hard to find some good one to one social commentary. Um, what was interesting as I found is in digging up some of the um, allegories you know some of the allegorical topics being depicted in film the thing as an allegory for the AIDS crisis is a very interesting read and you look at it it kind of, it makes sense the thing it, it's you know it's still a story of isolation and contamination and uh paranoia but the idea of a sickness a you know a a a killer a, a, some killer entity ravaging its way through a popu- this pop this controlled population and the one way to find out if somebody has it is to do a blood test it's a very interesting read on the thing and I don't think they intended it, but it just happened that it, it was right at the very beginnings of the AIDS crisis. So that, and it's a very interesting read to have. On. Alien is a similar thing, although it's not specifically about AIDS. It is a very interesting, I mean, having Alien as an, as an allegory for any type of disease is, is, an interest, is a way to read into it. You know, the fact that you should follow contamination rules and quarantining rules. And if you don't, then people will die. It's a very interesting read on it, and um, and of course I think one of the most iconic uh, issue, you know, major issues of uh, being told through allegory is the original Godzilla movie. Uh, the original Godzilla was a full-on allegory for atomic, the atomic bomb and atomic testing, and that first movie is so good because it is able to depict all of these things going on because of Godzilla's rampage because of. All the effects of the of radiation and poisoning and destruction that had happened to Japan. In fact, it was so it used so much imagery of that 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 was evocative of the atomic bombs dropping and the atomic test and the after effects of it that it was not a hit in japan until it became a hit with everybody else like as soon as america was on board and all these other countries were seeing and they were like oh my god this is amazing most of japan well i mean a good chunk of japan at least was like this is offensive like you're trying to make a monster movie out of our suffering how could you do that? And then once other people were starting to praise it and real, and they realized, Oh wow. You know, people were really digging this and they saw that, you know, it worked as an allegory. So they, it kind of, they began to embrace Godzilla as a sort of allegorical figure before turning him into a children's mascot. <laughs> oh God, I really want to do that Godzilla retrospective at some point. I need to, once I get caught up on all my other projects, I'm going to work on it. But, um, I also need to de- determine if I want to do that as a video or, uh, Audio series, so I'll have to look into it. Um, but you also look in... another really good allegory that I found was *The Gray*, the uh, 2011 movie *The Gray*, featuring Liam Neeson. Um, it was it was promoted as Liam Neeson versus a pack of wolves, but in reality, it's a Jack London-esque allegory for for the uh, for people dealing with death, specifically as each of the uh, survivors are picked off they showcase uh, aspects of dealing with the fact that they're dying. And, uh, in fact, you could see it as an allegory for the fact that they already died, but their souls had not recognized it yet, and they were staying behind. And so, eventually, you see some some guys panicked, some guys were angry, some guys, some guys uh, weren't, you know, th- there were all these different, um, you know, mindset. You see all these mindsets of... Uh, Dealing with death and you know the, the phases of dealing with death—I forget what that's called—but um, uh, then finally towards the end, you have the guys who are finally accepting that their their own mortality, as death in the form of this pack of wolves continually hunts them down. It's a very interesting read on the movie, and it makes me want to rewatch it again. And, um, and of course, you've got 1984 as an allegory for life under a totalitarian regime, uh, Pan's Labyrinth as its theme and its themes of and allegory for the Spanish civil war and the fascism in, in Spain at the time. Uh Wally as a, as an allegorical tale for um rampant consumerism and the need to take care of the environment. Uh Rango was an interesting uh read uh if you think as an allegory for um you know the pro, you know the uh, as like a like a really fast paced story about the development of the West and how it started off as this wild, untamed country, but then as progress and as things, as a technology progressed and as mindsets progressed, all of a sudden the idea of the West died out because it became more about progress for its own sake. And so if, if you have, if progress ignores the people at large and only benefits the few, it's not good progress. Progress is only beneficial when it benefits everybody, or at least as most, at least as many people as it can. So I think it's an interesting sort of uh, you know thing to look at. Um, one thing that I never saw, but apparently a lot of people do, is ET is an allegory for Jesus. <laughs> E.T. is an allegory for Jesus. He came down from the heavens and learned to live amongst mankind before returning to the heavens from whence he came. He came to save young Elliot and drink beer. You know, I, I don't remember a lot of Jesus allegories uh, having him get a cold, open up a cold one and get drunk with his buddies. Maybe um the Gospel according to Biff, Jesus, Jesus Christ's. Childhood friend, um, yeah. The original Dawn of the Dead is another. There's well, a lot of. There's not a lot of great allegories for racism or prejudice. I think. Um, I, uh, I. I think The Handmaid's Tale is a is a really powerful allegory for um, women's rights and sexism and and the misogyny inherent within patriarchal systems. And I still need to watch that series, but yeah, I mean, it's. Become so it's always been that sort of way, but then having a this visualization of that story made it more evocative to people and made it realize that oh my that yeah this is this is you know so much of this is happening and nobody's really even noticing about it but um I think the one that m- most people don't really think about uh is the matrix is an allegory for transitioning uh for being for being transgender and and be- and uh, transitioning genders. I mean, you, you people are saying. I mean, m- most people would argue that. Oh, you're reading that into it now because the directors and the then the directors behind it transitioned. But think of it this way: it's already. Th- it, I mean, it would make. It, I mean, even if the directors didn't transition, that theming is still there. Think about it. You're you're you know in your own quote unquote normal reality and as somebody somebody comes in and introduces you to a concept that seems foreign, you take a pill in order to become your true self and wake up in a in the real reality, actual reality, becoming who you actually are, not this version of yourself that you were but you were essentially forced to be or you know led to believe is the real you. That is a very kind of good, I I mean, it's not specific, I mean, it can apply to a lot of things, but I think the idea that it's an allegory, I mean, there's also the Jesus allegory, because, of course, but, um, but I think the Matrix as an allegory for transitioning works really well. And I think you could easily use that to kind of get people's mindsets around how tr- being trans, you know, as an intro to, like, how does being trans work? Well, uh, you realize you're not, who, you, know, so, you know, you begin to realize that the world is not what you think it is and that you are not who you think you are. You begin to take up, you start, you know, you start taking medication and then you wait and then event, and then as time goes on, you begin to wake up and be in the body that you are actually meant to be in. The real body. Your real body. So, you know. The Matrix is the best trans movie ever. Is that, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, also, uh, RoboCop, uh, as an as, you know, uh, allegorical tale about consumerism and the poli- militarization of police. RoboCop warned us about over-militarized police back in like, the 80s, and we never listened to it. And it's no one, and like, the remake had the perfect chance to really tackle that issue, and they decided, no, let's make a generic stupid action movie, with one really demented scene of him, of, of Alex Murphy as just a spinal cord. Um, so yeah, those are some really solid uh, depi- uh, allegories in film, but I also wanted to cover how film it, because this was inspired by a f- uh, series that messed it up, so let's talk about the times they messed it up james cameron's avatar i hate the fact that i have to call it that because i want you know you have to call one the avatar the last airbender and the other one you have to call james cameron's avatar so that people don't think when you're talking about avatar you're talking about blue cats instead of you know earth power you know elemental powers um but yeah james cameron's avatar is an allegory for colonialization stunk it was terrible it's awful terribly written uh for those of, I mean it's so terribly written you probably don't even remember how terribly written it is it's so forgettable and we're supposed to have like five sequels to it he's really gung ho about on about going in on these blue cat people god um in time you may not remember this one uh in time was a uh attempt to tell an allegorical story about capitalism by replacing monetary currencies physical currencies with the time you have left on Earth, and you spend your time on Earth, you spend however much time you have to live in order as currency instead of physical currency. It's really ham-fisted and terribly written. Also, the movie Lorax is a terrible take on environmentalism because the book had it, the book nailed it, the book had it perfect, and the movie just effed it up, just ruined it. Had no idea how to handle it. Um, something, uh, I actually had to ask around because a bunch of these I didn't recognize, I didn't realize, I wasn't able to think about them at first, but some of the ones that, um, some friends of mine pointed out to me, uh, were, uh, the Star Wars prequels want to try to be an allegory for the rise of fascism. And Lucas is such a terrible writer that he messed that up. Because having a Star Star Wars allegory for the rise of fascism in an era where there's a lot of fascistic uh, ideology... You know, that fascistic ideology is seeming to raise its head again. Having having a really well-told story about the rise of fascism may have been helpful. Thanks, Lucas, for messing that up. Um... I completely neglected this one. I completely forgot about this one, mainly because I never watched the movies. The Twilight series as an allegory for premarital sex. And, you know, a lot of Mormon um, ideas about sexuality and the fact that, you know, becoming a vampire is an allegory for having sex and you can't do it until you're married. Yeah, you know, to that. Something that uh I completely forgot about this movie. There's a movie uh I can uh, what was it when was it made? It's called Upside Down 2012. It is a science fiction movie starring Jim Sturgis and and Christian and Kirsten Dunst from Juan Diego Solanas, who was a who was an uh uh Argentinian director who uh this is his one and only uh, <laughs> um english language film everything else has been uh you know mostly in uh spanish and made in argentina it seems and it it's uh it it makes sense because he in this movie it, it was apparently a hot mess of a train wreck uh the premise here is it's a world where uh there are two planets within like a shared dual gravity system and so the planets are are within are like orbiting around each other and then there's the space in between them that nobody is allowed to cross so one planet is poor and um and 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 uh how do i describe it it's basically uh it's like the slum planet and then the other planet is the rich planet that's very well kept and very very hoity toity and uh jim sturgis is from the poor planet he falls in love with kirsten Dunst, who's on the rich planet and it's all about classism and the class struggle and breaking through the class struggle in the name of love and it's an interesting idea that is all that is terribly executed um, at least from what I've heard, I didn't even bother to see it. Fifty million dollars to make, and it only made back eight. <laughs> so that should tell you something. Uh, not that, you know, a movie failing is a sign of it being good, but it showed how many people were actually interested in watching it. <laughs> um, also, oh, here's one that I completely escaped my mind. The Happening, as an allegory for climate change. Leave it to M. Night Shyamalan to mess up a story about climate change by having the plants try to kill you, Garg! And of course, the uh, always uh, (laughs) terrible attempts at at making Superman an allegory for Jeebus. You know, so many superheroes. Spider Man's an allegory for Jesus. All the superheroes are allegories for Jesus. See, I go to church. I watch Superman. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And, of course, there, I could go on about terrible allegories, but that's kind of, you know, kind of give you an idea of, like, how it works and how it, you know, like, some good examples, some bad examples, and how the, the, the what some of the issues with trying to tackle social issues in the form of allegory is it's easier to not implicate real-world people and real-world groups it's harder when you have no idea when you're making things up and it's not a good allegory um and that's where our my last little group of um uh of examples is it's the nice try, a for effort award Jurassic park as a as an attempt to be an allegory for capitalism. I think the book handled it a little better, but the movie ignores a lot of the major themes about. How it's an allegory for capitalist culture and the need to constantly push things in order to, in the pursuit of profits, you know. It's I mean, it's the themes are there, but it's never really well explored because it's more about the killer dinosaurs and the all the sequels try to encapsulate it in some regard, and they never and they always miss the point because they're more focused on the dinosaurs and making really crappy stories. Like, seriously, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom was a load of trash. I hate it. Um, Zootopia, I mentioned. Uh, it's not a good one-to-one uh, allegory for regi- uh, p- prejudice and racism, but it's a solid attempt, and it gets bits and pieces of it right. It just is not a perfect allegory. So, I mean, as much as people say, like, oh, my God, it's the it's the best way to try to explain prejudice and racism to people, and it's like, not really, because... Um, It's not like the cops are, uh, part of the issue, which is true of our society. It would be one thing if all of the, you know, if all of the cops were herbivores and there were no carnivores on the force and they were implementing the laws against the carnivores. I think that would be more true of the, of trying to comment on America's, uh, systemic racism, but you know, once again, it's, uh, not perfect. Um, yeah so it's uh it it, it tries um uh, another good one uh i think the dark knight is a nice attempt but a fairly poor handling of trying to make a a, a commentary on the patriot act because the whole movie deal like the end of the movie is this whole commentary about the patriot act and uh, over surveillance but it never really it, it's only done the one time and then it's like all gone so it's like there's no real like it would be one thing if like it's revealed by Batman at the end that even though Julie, uh, Lucius Fox uh, dest- thought he destroyed the uh, the system Batman put in place that um, that in fact he it's still active. I think that would be a better commentary on like the Patriot Act. But uh, and, you know, it's, it's trying—it's trying its best to make a commentary on over-surveillance and the gov- and government surveillance, and you know, breaching the privacy. But it doesn't really quite go there. It's, just, it, it's like there for half a second, and then it's just erased and just you know, it's like okay, it's all good now. We solved it. Um, and of course, uh, the purge uh, is another good attempt, I think. It's trying to tackle systemic racism, poverty, uh, fat, the rise of fascism. It's trying to tackle these things, but unfortunately, people aren't catching the allegory. And that's part of the reason, you know, allegories work when people see it. If people don't see the allegory, it's not a good allegory. Or it's if they see it and it's badly written, it's a bad allegory. So, like... The good examples, uh, that kind of explains how best to deal with allegories. Tackle all of the aspects. Godzilla, in covering the atomic bombings of Japan and the atomic testing in the Pacific, covered a, all covered most of the major issues Japan had. You know, the radiation poisoning, the lives lost, the devastation. You know, the fact that it's um, America doing business out in Japan, you know, that affects the Japanese, and they're the victims. So, that's a good allegory. Uh, 1984 has an allegory, and of course, uh, it's companion, it's other, uh, Orwell's other piece, Animal Farm. Um, there's, there's like a few attempts to, I think a good, I think it could do a really good CG Animal Farm, uh, nowadays. I think someone should try that, but, um... The uh, a- Animal Farm as an allegory, and uh, 1984 has allegories for these totalitarian regimes. They captured all, so many of the aspects of living under these regimes, and it's people can see it, and it's well-written enough so that people can enjoy the product as well as read into the allegory. One I missed. Coraline is an allegory for child abduction and uh, grooming. Because even though it's mainly played as an Alice in Wonderland style, going to the uh, going to this magical world, it's more about if you look into if you watch it, um, other mother says and does a lot of the things that child groomers and child abductors will say and do towards their victims. In fact, uh, there have been people who who have said as much that they've heard the things other mother has said to Coraline from people who, from the people who have mistreated them. So, so that is another really well done allegory. The fact that you know somebody who knows about the topic can watch it, understand the allegory, and that it works within its universe and within the comparison to our universe. That's why um, Starship Troopers is not exactly a great allegory. It's a nice try, but um, but Starship the problem with Starship Troopers is the allegory is lost on the people who are more concerned about the cool action and killing bugs. In fact, in all the sequels, the sarcastic tone that Verhoeven took with the initial movie is lost. And in fact, the original book is much more straightforward and supportive of the fascistic tendencies of this government and the fact that it lies to its people and the fact that it's making up a war in order to get people to conscript to the military and it's a much more thorough allegory but the problem is the people watching the movie can't tell that it it's supposed to be a joke and you're not supposed to support the fascism people think oh this is fun i'm having fun therefore this is good so it's a nice try. You're definitely making fun of the fascism, but it doesn't quite work because it's lost on the people watching the movie. And uh, that's why I think another good allegory I missed was, um, I listed a bunch of these down, uh, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. A lot of 50 sci-fi were commentaries on McCarthyism and the Red Scare, the fact that they were tapping into people's paranoia about the enemy being among them. The enemy being Russians, you know, Soviets, the Cossacks, uh, the communists. And, um, it's, uh, you know, you get the invasion of the body snatchers. You get, uh, um, the day of the Triffids, I think was another one. Basically the idea that the people that are there, V, the miniseries V covers a bunch of this, and especially like an occupying force. Um, one, I don't know how well it holds up. People have said it holds up fairly well. District nine but I haven't watched it in a while and I can't speak because apparently what's interesting is not only is that about apartheid, it's actually about, it also doubles as a commentary on South Africans, uh, viewing the Zimbabwean refugee crisis. Cause during the time, leading up to the time the movie was made, there was a influx of Zimbabweans, Uh, Or maybe it's not refugees. Maybe they were just immigrants. But uh, uh, there was an influx of Zimbabwean uh, people uh, coming into South Africa and living in the slums. And, you know, similarly to how Americans viewed um, uh, Mexican and Central American immigrants coming into the country. In fact, the, the interviews at the beginning of District 9 were apparently people being interviewed about the Zimbabweans coming into the country. So all of that hatred towards this alien people was directed towards an actual people, so to speak. I I read this on Reddit. I have no idea if it's true, but um if it's if it's true, uh let me know. If it's not true, especially let me know. I don't want to spread a bad uh, I don't want to sp- spread misinformation if I don't have to. But it makes sense the idea that here, you know, the this alien force Is an uh, illegal immigrant and is now forced to live in the slums. So I don't know how well it works. I mean, it's very clearly obvious to the people watching it, and I think the movie itself is fairly well written. But I don't, you know, but I would not, but I would not be surprised if people who have dealt people on the receiving end of that sort of prejudice, that sort of racism, would see District Nine as you know, overlooking a lot of the, you know, more of the hardships about that sort of life. So I'm open to suggest, you know, I'm open to interpretations where it's not good as well. So it's been a while. I don't want to, you know, I'm always open to the idea that, oh, this thing I love is, may, may not be good. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I'll still, you know, by, till my dying day, I will not take Bambi, uh, I I will take Bambi as, like, the best movie of all time to my, you know, to my grave. That will be, you know, people will say Godfather, Shawshank, Dark Knight, Avengers Endgame or something like that. Nope. Bambi. Best movie of all time. We peaked in 1942, damn it. Um, So, yeah, I'm going to take that to my grave. And there's not... We will not take Bambi slander in this household. I don't know where that came from. Uh, Anyway... That kind of covers my take on allegories. Uh, we may look back into this subject uh, if another really bad allegorical film comes up, but uh, suffice to say that writing allegories is hard, and uh, if you have no idea what you're doing, you're going to screw it up. So really think, really think things out uh, if you're going to try and tackle real-world issues through allegory. That about does it for this week's episode, which means it is time for the plugs, and for the first time in a bunch of weeks we don't have to do the baby transition from heavy topic to f- funny song. <laughs> anyway. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. If you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can whitelist us on your ad blocker and favorite us on your web browser. And while you're there, check out all of our other fine programming. This week we've got a, we're starting the first ever gym battle on Dungeons and Dragon types, so stay tuned for that on Wednesday. And check out all of our other fine programming, Living in the Stacks, Once More with Feeling, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, uh, The Family Business, and if you yourself are a podcaster and would like to join our fledgling little family, send all your inquiries to networks at gmail.com and we'll get back to you if we think you're a good fit. Uh you can also find this podcast on your various podcast providers, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, uh iHeartMedia, Spreaker Stitcher, uh Spotify, and wherever you're listening to this podcast, if you could give it a five-star rating and review, let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out as well. You can also find us on social media at facebook.com/slash popcorn junkie, Twitter at cornjunkiepod, uh letterboxed uh letterboxd.com at cornjunkiepod, uh i'm on instagram you know uh, ceremonially more than anything else i barely use instagram at all uh that's uh popcorn junkie podcast and if you're on stardust i'm a, i'm at popcorn junkie and am still <laughs> uh uh depression's a, a a pain in the ass because all you do is sit in bed and do nothing and not be productive and uh eh. anyway uh and then of course uh You can leave comments, say what you thought about my reviews, my takes on allegory, if you have your own, um, bad allegories, or good allegories, or, or maybe you have another one for, like, the nice try, head pat, A for effort, uh, category, uh, I would love to hear your thoughts, um and uh, you can also send any uh uh your you send your thoughts privately on uh email at gumby at uh popcorn junkie com. and uh if you want me to you can i can uh read it out on the mic uh, otherwise i can just we can just talk privately um you can also put support the show on patreon patreon.com/popcornjunkie um We uh mar has yet to give me a uh new suggestion to watch um eh it happens. Uh, they gave me a whole month's worth of suggestions, and uh, so yeah, we'll wait for them to come up with some new ones. But I'd love to have your suggestions. So if you have a suggestion for something for me to review, or if you want me to do uh, one of the other series, like make a better movie, uh, want to do a munch along, want to want to hear my commentary on a movie, you can do we, we you can suggest one of those for Patreon, and then um, you can you know you can get the podcast. Normally, get the podcast early, but, uh, you know, depression this week. Um, but you can also get access to those private episodes of Make a Better Movie and Munch along, and you can also, and you'll also get thanked at the at, uh, in every episode. So, yeah, thank you, uh, Mar, for uh, supporting the show, and I would love for you to join them and supporting the show. That's patreon.com slash Junkie. L- no tier system, little as $1 a month. So that covers it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and hopefully I can uh, uh, get over this hump and get productive again. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up Nafio.DeviantArt.com for more of his artwork. And as always, today and tomorrow, now and forever, Black Lives Matter and trans rights are human rights. You can kind of read that. (laughs) Yeah? Oh dear, hold on, I'll come get it.